Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're commemorating the Irish Civil War, which began 100 years ago, and we'll be finding out how violent it was and the impact it had on the women and men caught up in it. We'll be talking to Dermot Farriter about the causes, course and legacy of the war, to Sinead McCool about women prisoners and their treatment, and we'll end the show discussing a new biography of Cahill Brewer, the first Cian Corla, as well as the first high-profile figure to be killed in the conflict. Now, last week, we discussed the life of Anne Frank and the legacy of her diary, and uncovered some other family histories of the Second World War. And if you want to listen back to this or to some of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We also would love to hear your ideas on other shows we could do in the weeks and months ahead. Just send us an email, talkinghistory at newstalk.com. We begin tonight's show with an overview of the Civil War and I'm delighted to be joined by Dermot Farriter, Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD and the author of Between Two Hells, The Irish Civil War, published by Profile Books. And he was one of the speakers at the major four-day national conference on the Civil War, which took place in UCC and which concluded yesterday. Uh, Dermot, you're very welcome to the show. It's lovely to be here, Patrick. You speak in the book about the contours and the colours of the Civil War. And I wonder, given that there are so many contours, is it possible to give an easy explanation for why the Civil War broke out? (laughs) Yes and no. It's possible to give an easy explanation if you are on one side or other. And that is part of the complication of trying to distinguish between propaganda and history. Uh, You'll be familiar with some of the titles that that have been attached to the Civil War. Green against Green brother against brother, democracy versus dictatorship. You know, historians for various reasons were looking for rubrics or frameworks of interpretation um, and and they could settle on frameworks of interpretation like that. But my argument is that 100 years on, they just don't do justice to the complexities. You might be familiar as well with a very striking image that Kevin O'Higgins left us with. He addressed the Oxford Union in 1924 and he spoke about himself and his colleagues who had accepted the treaty, were members of the provisional government in City Hall at the beginning of the Civil War. He described them as eight young men standing amidst the ruins of one administration with the foundations of another not yet built and wild men screaming through the keyhole. And it's a very striking image, but it was arch propaganda. And that was the kind of explanation for the Civil War, that it wasn't really a civil war at all, that we were the defenders of democracy fighting against the wild men. And of course, that description of the wild men strips them of their humanity. That was done to a lot of the women as well. Liam de Rochda was a Cork Sinn Féin TD and he kept a diary during the period. And he referred to Mary McSweeney, who was the redoubtable Cork anti-treaty Republican and her colleagues as monomaniacs. He said they're not normal human beings. There's a moral sore in the heart of Ireland. So that was one way of explaining the Civil War. It was about those who were too irrational and incapable of, of accepting democracy and of accepting compromise. But as you begin to excavate the Civil War more, you can discover there are actually an awful lot of people who are struggling to be trenchant about it. You know, I give the example uh, of the researcher Jimmy Wren, um, who looked at the GPO garrison of 1916. There were 572 people in the GPO over the course of Easter week 1916. And 41% of them opted out of the Civil War or were neutral during the Civil War, which suggests there were many who didn't think it was uh, worth a Civil War. So we have to factor them in as well. Uh, But ultimately, you you do have to acknowledge the contempt for public opinion. 
There is broad public support for the treaty insofar as we can measure it, particularly through the June 1922 general election, though even that election is is, is not uncomplicated. Uh, there is broad public support, but a lot of people on the Republican side and, and in the IRA, including Liam Lynch, the chief of staff, uh, the way he expressed it was that the army had to hew the way to freedom for politics to follow. And they didn't think politicians had the right to give the republic away. And we have to try and understand those mindsets, you know, what motivated them. Uh, Frank O'Connor, who was a young anti-treaty Republican, said, I rarely thought, I felt. And we can't dismiss or discount those emotions, the feelings that were swirling uh, around. So I suppose one of the arguments I'm making is we need to give it back to them. You know, we need to try and understand the mindsets and the mentalities and to give it a simplistic label or to suggest that there's a very easy answer to the crisis of the Civil War is, is not to do justice to their complexity. How violent was it as a, as a conflict? And we, we have numbers for those who, who died during it. And I wonder when you look at the, 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 the list, when you look at where the engagements took place, it's it's difficult to see it as it's difficult when you look at the, the, the where the engagements were for the War of Independence that it's a it's a different map we see here in 1922 and 23. Well, the way Michael Hopkinson described it, he wrote the book called Green Against Green in 1988, which is a really strong book, and he's very good on the military dynamics, and he describes it as chaotic, and it's all about looking at the different regions. You know, there's no one size fits all. Different counties experience different things. Take Wexford for example. There were 23 people killed in Wexford during the War of Independence. There were 50 killed in Wexford during the Civil War. Why was Wexford more violent during the Civil War than it was during the War of Independence? And you begin to get all these questions and conundrums that relate to individual counties and it depends on local dynamics and and the depth of local tensions that may have been kept under wraps during the War of Independence sometimes that can bubble down to the surface or explode to the surface during the Civil War. Uh, So it it really does depend on what's going on in, in particular parts of the country. Now, You've also got to acknowledge that it's not a particularly violent civil war. If you take the end of the First World War, there were, in the next couple of years, to be the so-called Wars of the Pygmies, as they were famously dismissed uh, as by Winston Churchill, the British Secretary of State for the Colonies. They killed four million people, these supposed Wars of the Pygmies. And this is all about the ethnic and political strife post-First World War, the civil wars, of which Ireland is a part and what a lot of Irish historians are doing now is they're looking at it in a global context and discovering Ireland's civil war was not a particularly violent civil war by international standards. Uh, perhaps in the region of 1,500 people were killed. It could have been a lot worse. There are restraining influences. And we are not part of the culture of defeat after the First World War that can lead to so-called ultra-violence. Uh, take Finland, for example. It's civil war in 1918, a few years previously, in a country of similar size and population. 36,000 people were killed and thousands of them were starved to death. Prisoners, those anti-treaty Republicans interned in Ireland, were not treated with that level of savagery. There are moments of absolute brutality. There are terrible atrocities. There's no doubt about that. But in the overall scale of, of conflict in 1922 internationally, Ireland's civil war was by no means the worst. And how do you explain away those atrocities? Because as you say, some some terrible things on both sides, the killing of a of a TD, Sean Hales, then some uh, reprisals uh, by the state. It, it really became this this very bloody, very, very violent and and really quite tragic uh, series of events. Yeah. And I think those who were on the same side can attack each other with great vengeance when they fall out. 
You mentioned Sean Hales there, who was the pro-treaty TD who was killed in December 1922. His brother Robert was on the other side. And his brother Robert would have applied for a military service pension, this terrific archive we have now to excavate the afterlives of the Civil War generation. And, you know, he made the point that it, it destroyed his life. Uh, he died very young. But imagine what it did to individual families like his and then by extension communities. And sometimes the betrayal that they felt was so deep that they were prepared to do terrible things to each other. Um, and there's all sorts of post-colonial complications going on here. A lot of people will be familiar with the Ballyseedy atrocity in Kerry, for example, uh, when eight Republicans uh, were blown up, tied together and a, and a mine detonated. Um, and according to Stephen Fuller, who survived that miraculously, they were called Irish bastards. Irish bastards by those Irish men who were about to kill them. What does that say about what's going on in relation to the transition between Ireland as a, as a British colony um, and, and this new phase? Um, so there's a lot of complex psychological things uh, going on, but there's also desperation. There's desperation for this to be over quickly, and it, it is a relatively short civil war. There's desperation um, in, in the sense that there's a recognition that Republicans can retreat to their heartland. You know, they can dig in in, in Kerry or Tipperary or, or, or Limerick and engage in a guerrilla warfare. That could drag on indefinitely. How is the state going to get on its feet? Uh, so there's a, ter- a determination to rout them. But what I'm also becoming more and more interested in is the history of trauma. And some of those who both endured and inflicted considerable pain in 1922 and 1923 were already carrying an awful lot of baggage and an awful lot of trauma from the War of Independence period. And we're beginning, I suppose, to get more of a sense of what violence both inflicted and endured did to that generation of men and women. Ireland probably would have benefited from some kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the 1920s. But given that we didn't have one of those 100 years on, what should be done or can anything be done? Should there be a state apology for the wrongs that were done by the state? Or No, there shouldn't. Um, if you get into the business of state apologies for the Civil War of 100 years ago, um, it, it's open-ended and it's impossible to satisfy people. Uh, there was a very pragmatic decision taken in the 1920s not to pursue the legacy in that sense. In other words, the free state side indemnified itself legally against acts that had been committed and it then decided not to pursue legal cases against anti-treaty Republicans. That was the wise thing to do. Um, It's not necessarily ignoble to agree uh, silence, you know. Now, it it means that there are issues that are unresolved, no doubt about that, and there's an awful lot of trauma uh, and difficulties that are internalised, which is not a healthy thing in many ways. But for a state 100 years on, to begin to decide that it's going to apologise for X atrocity or Y atrocity. Well, what about B, C, D, E atrocities, you know? And I really think the focus needs to be on the local areas. Local communities need to decide on how to commemorate the Civil War, um, particularly because of the local and regional dynamics, you know? It's not for some centralised body uh, to impose a framework of a commemoration. And I don't think it's for the state either to set itself up as some kind of pious entity uh, that would begin to apologise. What it needs to acknowledge, of course, is that neither side had a monopoly on virtue or cruelty. Ireland also lost many of its leaders during the Civil War, including... Michael Collins and you have a, an interesting take on the death of Collins at Bill Nablaw putting some of the blame on Collins himself for stopping. Well I mean it was foolish 
It wasn't just about the stopping. It was about drink having been consumed over the course of the day. Of course, he was meeting uh, on his home turf. Uh, he was initially surrounded, obviously, by those who were supportive of him. Uh, there was a bit of brazenness and a, a bit of uh, foolhardiness involved uh, in that and it wasn't a good idea uh, to stop because they were clearly very vulnerable. But it raises more interesting questions, of course, not only about what he was doing there and whether there was an attempt to try and broker some kind of uh, compromise to end the civil war, um, but it also raises the question inevitably of the lost leader, you know. There's a tendency because Collins is cut down in his prime at such a young age, to idealise him. He becomes a blank canvas onto which you can paint all sorts of idealised uh, images. But he didn't inhabit a different ideological planet to his contemporaries and his peers. He was very much of their mindsets. And even his slim volume of collected speeches and words that were published in the aftermath of his, uh, his death, uh, they're very similar to the kind of speeches that Eamon de Valera was making in relation to an idealisation of the West of Ireland, a quite a conservative approach to... Um, economic matters and so on. So, you know, um, there can be an opportunity to, to greatly exaggerate. I remember even the, the farcical levels it reached, even during the recent economic crash uh, after 2008, uh, there was a suggestion that, oh, well, if Michael Collins was in charge now, if Michael Collins was Minister for Finance now, we wouldn't be in this mess. We wouldn't have allowed ourselves to get to this point. Uh, and you can take that as far as you wish uh, but it can be quite ahistorical as well. It can be uh, fun for historians to engage in in speculation. But I don't imagine if Collins had lived, Ireland would have been fundamentally different. There probably wasn't going to be any other result to the civil war, was there, given the, the numbers on each side and the level of public support? Not a chance, no. And I mean, the, the civil war militarily as a contest was really over by the summer of 1922. I mean, it limped along until the spring of 1923. But the reality was the Free State side, with some British support at the outset, obviously, and during the civil war, had so many more military resources. They had more support amongst the people and they had a very bloated national army, which ultimately was 55,000 strong by the end of the Civil War. Now, that created its own problems in relation to demobilisation. But the anti-treaty Republicans at best could perhaps muster uh, 10, 11, 12,000 uh, and they were vulnerable and they weren't as well equipped. Um, so, uh, you know, as a military contest, it was never going to be lost by the free state side. But ultimately, you also have to think long term about what happened to the defeated anti-treaty Republicans. Um, and it's not. This is not just about the the comeback of Eamon de Valera and you know Fianna Fáil coming to power less than ten years after the end of the civil war. It's also about those defeated anti-treaty Republican men and women who felt they'd no future in Ireland. The way Sheila Humphreys put it, as one of those anti-treaty Republican women, we felt flattened. We felt the public had forgotten us. The tinted trappings of our fight were hanging like rags around us, and many of them emigrated. I've looked in particular at West Kerry. Uh, and there were 257 women in common man in West Kerry during the revolutionary period. 106 of them had left West Kerry by the 1930s. Um, and a very substantial proportion of the IRA had left as well. So for some, there's just no future uh, in Ireland. Others managed to reconcile themselves to the new state. Some got involved, obviously, in the new um, Fianna Fáil Republican movement from the late 1920s. And de Valera is then able to ironically vindicate the assertion of Michael Collins that the treaty was indeed a stepping stone to greater freedom and ultimately to the Republic. And that must have been incredibly difficult for supporters of the treaty to stomach, to watch de Valera vindicate or prove Michael Collins right in the aftermath of the Civil War. For a hundred years, people have talked about Civil War politics. How real was that concept and how long did it endure and how bitter was it? Well, it's very real and it did endure. It endured until Fianna Fáil decided to support uh, Fianna Gael 
with his confidence and supply agreement after 2016 and then it formally ended when they agreed to share power uh, in 2020-2021. That was the formal end of civil war politics. Now, you could see the shrinkage in the combined vote of the civil war parties, uh, a very dramatic shrinkage as well under 50%. Now, that's been going on really since the 1980s, that uh, that shrinkage. Um, But we don't just have to think of civil war politics in a negative way. Uh, Obviously, there are very little that divide those two parties in uh, meaningful ideological terms. And yet, their very lack of difference led to a great degree of political stability. June 1922 saw a general election, the first general election for this new state. Our democracy has endured unbroken for 100 years. How many European states can make that claim? And our democracy endured, and we need to make more of that achievement. We'll understandably be a focus, focusing uh, you know, on difficulties and, and violence and lost leaders. But we need to think about that essential achievement as well. Now, it may have been a stagnant stability, but when you consider the upheavals of the post-Civil War decades, particularly the 1930s, Ireland withstood the extremes and continues to withstand the extremes. And civil war politics is one reason for that. So whilst we can decry it sometimes for the deadening effect it may have had, it also served a particular purpose and it meant Ireland could actually recover from the civil war relatively quickly. At least they were trading insults in the context of a joint commitment to parliamentary democracy. You've also done a lot of work on Eamon de Valera and Eamon de Valera appears in your book. And it's, again, the enigmatic side of de Valera because he seems at a remove from the events, not quite uh, on message with those who are are fighting on the anti-treaty side. You see, this is another one of the reasons. I mean, we started talking about how you might label the civil war, how they chose to label it. You know, I mean, de Valera was adamant in his correspondence with Mary McSweeney that reason rather than faith was what drove him. So he couldn't identify with the so-called diehards like Mary McSweeney, which is a reminder that even on the anti-treaty side, there were differences of opinion. De Valera's heart is not really in the civil war. Now, he self-servingly describes himself as, as powerless to intervene, you know, as viewing it from behind a pane of glass, which is an exaggeration. And he referred to himself as a humble soldier. There was never anything humble uh, about Eamon de Valera. But he is at a low point. He is contemptuously dismissed in private by some of the leading uh, anti-treaty Republicans because they regard, they regard him as, as, as too open to compromise anyway. And he's in hiding for much of the civil war. Uh, but he does really struggle uh, during this period because he realises uh, that what he's doing at that point in 1922 represents a political cul-de-sac, which is why he begins to plot a way out of it, which eventually becomes Sweden the fall in 1926. But he also made reckless and irresponsible speeches, particularly in the run-up to the Civil War, um, and was carrying that arrogance that was articulated uh, in, in the words, the people have no right to do wrong, you know. And there's this constant talk of the people and the nation and the republic without ever really defining uh, what they mean, you know. But he's also carrying the arrogance that has been built up as, as, as a result of the deference that has been shown towards him, you know, the sole surviving commandant of the 1916 Rising, the status he had as an international figure. But that's not really of much use to him in the summer of 1922. We've had the decade of centenaries and many events commemorated 1913 lockout, 1916 rising, War of Independence and so on. But all along people have said, oh, well, it's, it's, it's straightforward commemorating these are relatively straightforward. Wait till we get to the, to the Civil War. How do you think we are approaching the commemoration of the Civil War and have we got it right? In a very low key way, I think. And that's as it should be. You don't celebrate Civil War. You don't brandish your flags 
uh, for, for, for civil war or, or wave your flags. Uh, and the way Todd Andrews put it, when, you know, he was a teenage anti-treaty Republican and he came, became obviously a very distinguished public servant and wrote his memoirs and he said, alas, you know, there are no victories in civil war. You know, there are just monuments to the dead. And in that sense, that's very relevant to commemoration. Neither side of the civil war has any reason to celebrate. Now, some will argue that point, um, but you could make the point that because terrible things were done uh, by both sides, because shortcuts were taken uh, in relation to legalities, and of course you've got the legacy of the state executions, um, neither side really has reason to be boasting. Now, I still remember in 2014 watching Liam Cosgrave when he launched a book in the Royal Irish Academy, the son of uh, W.T. Cosgrave, robustly defending the policies of, of, of the executions. Uh, and he felt it incumbent upon him for personal and political reasons as a keeper of the flame of that first government of the 1920s to defend the execution. I'd say contemporary Fine Gaelers would find it much more difficult uh, uh, to defend the executions. But be that as it may, it's just a reminder that there is um, a certain wisdom perhaps in seeking to be commemorating the civil war in, in, in quite a low-key way uh, with an emphasis more on understanding what it meant for individuals. That's why the Pension Archive, for example, uh, is, is, is an enormous advantage to us as historians now that we can begin to understand um, what that generation went through um, and not just the impact of, of the conflict, but the fractured afterlives and to remember the, the psychological uh, impacts that it had. So we need to confront silences and we need to confront some of these very difficult themes of, of violence and trauma. Um, and when it comes to formal state commemoration, I, I imagine the preference will be for, for a day of remembrance and reconciliation rather than seeking to update the civil war divide. Well, my thanks to Professor Dermot Farrisher for joining me tonight to talk about the Irish Civil War and I uh, really recommend his book Between Two Hells, The Irish Civil War and it excavates so many of those stories of the men and women who were caught up in that conflict. We'll be back with more on the Civil War, the women who were involved in the conflict and we'll also be finding out about the casualties all coming up after the break. Talking History, History. on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we discuss the tragic and terrible events of the Irish Civil War. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Sinead McCool, historian and author whose books include Hazel, A Life of Lady Lavery, No Ordinary Women, Irish Female Activists in the Revolutionary Years and Easter Widows. And she was also a speaker at this week's Irish Civil War Conference at UCC. Uh, That was part of the Decade of Centenaries programme where she discussed female imprisonment at Kilmainham Jail. Sinead, you're very welcome. And can we begin with maybe discussing the misogyny that has surrounded the women who opposed the treaty and who were involved in the Civil War? They always seem to have have received a, a fairly harsh deal from people. I suppose what we have to look at in terms of the way the women were talked about in the period of the 20s was the fact that Mary McSweeney um, in particular um, led that, you know, the, the second Doyle continuing to meet. So it was often referred to as Miss McSweeney's Doyle. And she was quite, um, you know, a formidable opponent, um, you know, in the, the press. So I, I see a lot of the, the sort of the way in which the women were depicted um, in you know, the, the beginnings of the, the, the you know, the, the writing of the history from the campaign of independence right through 
uh, you know, as a way of sort of um, sidelining them and um, to depict uh, their their role as a sort of begetters of war. Now, what's interesting about it is, is that obviously because of the, the role of women in the campaign of independence, there was a mass arrest during the period of the civil war. And that meant that, the, that, that, that there were, you know, a, a profiling of women who were politicised in Ireland in a way that I suppose needed to be explained. So talk to us about some of these women. Kathleen Clark, the widow of Tom Clark, uh, Maud Gone McBride, Grace Plunkett, all figures who uh, were very much uh, involved in the revolutionary struggle. I suppose, yeah, we, when we look at the period of, of the Civil War, you still see those women involved. You know, Maud Gone would have been particularly active in going to the, the, the gates of the prisons because at this stage, you know, people were arrested, there weren't, um, you know, lists, or names being announced, and so people disappeared, and so there was great gatherings outside Mountjoy, later Kilmainham Jail, for people looking for information on who were the prisoners and who were who were inside. And Maud Gone, along with Charlotte Despard and others, set up an organisation, the Women's Women Prisoners Defence League, which was known as the Mothers, um, representing a group of people to lobby for. Um, information on those who've been imprisoned. So she, she remained active. Now, she was arrested for a brief period um, in Kilmainham Jail for, for one of her protests, but she wasn't really one of the prisoners that was there for the longest time. You have the women that were in um, the, the Suffolk Street Sinn Féin offices that were arrested in November of 1922, and they were held nearly for a year. And of those women, you have people like um, Theresa O'Connell, her sister would have been Kathleen, who would have been de Valera's secretary. You would have had Lily O'Brennan, who was the sister of Anya Kant, who was in prison. And her letters back and forth to her sister um, um, in terms of the of her the conditions in Kilmainham and one, but Anya's letters back to her about the constant raids that were happening to her in Oakley Road, because the, the women who were the 1916 leaders' wives were, were, were targeted because they were seen as symbols of this republic. And, um, and so so when you read the letters that um, Anya writes, in particular about the, the destruction of the personal items that had belonged to her, that, it, that were, you know, Eamon's photographs, and the fact that she recognised some of the men who came in to the house in the raid, who had been, you know, former um, comrades of her husband, and you're sort of conflicted about who, who was worse off, whether it was Lily who was in the prison or whether it was Anya who was at home. And how bad were the conditions then for these prisoners? I suppose when I wrote about it originally in the 1990s and I spoke to a number of the women who had been imprisoned, what I would say is that I now look back and I didn't really have a full understanding of maybe the context of the time. There wasn't the material written, um, particularly in relation to the women's role, that meant that I, I sort of asked maybe the right questions. The women that had lived on, so Theresa O'Connell, who I already mentioned, lived to be 100, Nora Brosnan, um, ended up um, in, in, in living into her 90s and, and she was in America. And when I spoke to them about the, the conditions in the jail, I tended to talk to them about, you know, the sort of the day-to-day activities. So, so things like cooking in the cells, the type of parcels that came in, the, um, the, the activities that they did to pass the time. But I suppose if, if, if I was to reflect now more fully on what was happening in the prisons, is that it was it was more that the the way in which these women you know you know galvanised their support of each other and so when you look at them now and what I've looked at in 
more recent times is, you know, what happened next? What did the women do in the, in the, in the post-Civil War period? You know, who did they become? What connections did they keep? And what networks did they continue? And I think what, what you have is, is, is a group of women who became politicized with a small piece. So there was their involvement in their communities or what they did in terms of, you know, continuing with the Irish language, continuing with the cultural life of Ireland. They, they tried in, in the Irish Free State to continue their, their, their involvement, and, and many of them still remained political, whether it was in Fair Era, whether it was in Friends of Soviet Russia, or um, in the Public Power, continuing in Common Amman. So, so, so you have a group of women who, who at the time, were, um, were coming together and, 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 and interacting, and that influenced them and, and how they lived their lives after the period of the Civil War. And why were they so strongly opposed to the treaty? And why were they uh, on the anti-treaty side in the Civil War? Because it, it has to be more than, than the, the emotional connections they had with, with, with dead loved ones, I think. Yeah, I suppose, it, I suppose the element of, of them, the, the, what they had endured or what they had suffered is definitely a factor, so particularly for the women who led. Um, I think that what you see in maybe what, what you would describe as the rank and file is that, and again, this may be in simplistic reading, and I think, I mean, and you, I'm sure you would agree that I think that one of the things that we, we now have a sort of a, a great understanding of the earlier period, but do we really have an understanding of the Civil War and the motivations? I think we're still learning about that period and really coming to an understanding with the pension records and new material that's been released. I think what, when you look at the at the at the way in which the the the, the idea of the republic was framed, um, certainly a, a number of people would say that it was that that the the republic being proclaimed in 1916, the document that said that there was equal, could be equal lives and equal opportunities, had a, um, a message for for women that they could relate to, and that they wanted that Ireland. That would, you know, cherish the children equally, and and so that, so when you read somebody like, you know, Dorothy McArdle, I think that that her opening for her, you know, her book on the on the Irish Republic, and if anybody wants to sort of take the time to, you know, to revisit that book, it's it's like nine hundred and and, and ninety nine pages um, of a story of this period. But when she talks in the beginning, she says the, you know, she said whether the Irish Republic ever existed has been disputed not only by jurists. And not only with words, the Irish Republic for a few tense years was a living reality, its existence of a kind, very baffling to its enemies, where the Republic was an invisible, um, it was invisible within a visible and intangible within a state. So what's really important to remember about the women that were imprisoned in the jail this time is that the, the vast majority of them were single women. And this is the period of their youth. And so we can see very clearly the friendship networks, the cousins and the sisters that were in prison together, and the women that were from, you know, different places. So they were all arrested together. So there's groupings from Kerry and from Cork, and they, 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 they're in cells together, and they call themselves, you know, the, the devil may cares, or the, the night owls, because they were certain, you know, younger people who wouldn't go to bed early. And so the, the higher-ranking and older women within the structure in, in that it you know, form themselves into a prison council were, were, were basically sort of, you know, you know, telling them off for, for singing and being, you know, so sort of rumpunctious into the night. So, so you can see it very clearly in the way that they interact, that 
that this is um, that they've come up through the ranks together during the campaign of independence. They have been involved in the in the network, um, you know, of, of of you know distributing messages. So they've gone for, come from teenagers into their twenties, and 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 uh, or or indeed, you know, some of them were you know in their thirties. But but as they, as I said, they, they, these the reasons that they that they banded together, you know, um, in terms of of the their the, let's say their opposition to the Irish Free State is because they they had been involved in the in in the campaign in order to 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 achieve something. And I think there's a there's a really great quote, you know, that that comes and I have to paraphrase it from you know Helena Maloney when she talked about it that you know that what they were looking for was like a you know a you know a religion that they had that that they had such a belief in what they were working for. And then, of course, in the in the same quote, she talks about you know you know they didn't realize it. That's not what happened. But at the time, they had this real belief that what they were fighting for was was better. Well, we're going to take a quick break now. But when we come back, we'll be talking to the authors of a new biography of Cahill Brewer, the first high-profile figure to be killed in the Civil War, and we'll be finding out how he was actually opposed to the fighting in the Civil War, even though he became one of the leading figures in it. That's all coming up after the break. Talking history, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. To end the show tonight, we're going to look at the case study of Cahill Brewer whose role in the Civil War has been much mythologised and misunderstood. And to tell me the real story, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Dahi O'Cron and Dr. Jared Hanley. And both of them were also speaking at the Irish Civil War Conference at UCC in the last few days. And they're the author of a new biography, Cahill Brewer, An Indomitable Spirit, published by Four Courts Press. And you're both very welcome to the show. Thank you very Thank much, you, Patrick. Patrick. You begin, and maybe, uh, Doi, I might start with you. Uh, you begin uh, a chapter with this very arresting sentence. Cahill Brewer fought and died in a civil war he opposed. And that really uh, struck me very powerfully because Brewer is is someone who was one of the, I suppose he was the first high-profile casualty of the civil war. He's He's recognised as one of the leading figures on the anti-treaty side and I hadn't realised the extent to which he had opposed the civil war himself. Uh, absolutely, it's something that generally is is misunderstood. Uh, Brewer is often cast as a militant, but in fact he's better described as a constitutionalist. And for Brewer, after the treaty, uh, he is committed uh, to upholding uh, the Republic. This is the governing thesis of his life. But he's also committed uh, to upholding the authority of the Dáil. And the very last thing he wants is is civil war and fratricidal uh, strife. Now, he does believe that the likelihood of war is high, but he believes that that war is more than likely going to be with the British. And he spends several months in the company of de Valera. He's a convert uh, to de Valera's external association idea. And they spend several months uh, canvassing constituents to bring them around to their point of view. Uh, and for Brewer, he wants, in a sense, the people to decide at a general election whether they want to be citizens of an Irish Republic or whether they want to be um, British subjects. And that, in a nutshell, is is his position. But he goes, you know, he has various schemes, Patrick, to try and prevent uh, civil war to maintain unity. These include suggestions at one point that himself and Collins would retire uh, and would instead focus their energies on defending uh, northern nationalists. So um, he, he is very committed to trying to prevent civil war. 
Sure, the book makes very it makes a very strong case for his commitment to the Republic and and how powerful that was for him. How influential was the the tension with Collins and with Richard Mulcahy? Because there seems to be increasing problems with them and increasing bitterness. And I wonder, did that play into uh, the part that he played as well then? Well, I, I think bitterness between Collins and Brewer certainly increased after the establishment of the first doll. Brewer certainly became increasingly uh, suspicious of Collins's motives. When Collins goes to Britain to uh, negotiate the treaty, I think he realises kind of his suspicions were true that uh, Collins was not as committed to the ideal of the Republic to the extent that Brewer kind of was. And that certainly gave rise kind of to the bitter exchanges in, in, in the Dáil. But it, it must be understood that Brewer and Collins were certainly on very good friendly terms kind of earlier in their life. I, I think kind of the whole question regarding their uh, vision of the Republic certainly drove kind of their the relationship apart. Dahi, given that Brewer had this strong commitment to the doll, his belief in the democratic mandate, he seemed to, you know, be suspicious of Collins because of that shadowy IRB influence that he thought wasn't really being properly maybe controlled by the doll. Given that belief in democracy, why didn't he accept the results of the June 1922 general election? Because of course, this month is also the centenary of that huge event, and that those results show a very huge majority, almost almost 80% uh, of the votes cast were for pro-treaty candidates. Um, I suppose, in a sense, he, he did accept the result. Uh, it is a shattering blow for him. It, it creates an almost existential crisis because uh, the Irish public have voted against uh, Brewer's cherished Irish Republic and in favour uh, of, of the Irish Free State. Uh, but uh, that does not mean that he kind of switched his attentions immediately uh, to the prospect of taking up arms. In fact, uh, far from it. Um, Brewer was secretly pleased uh, after the election because uh, nobody was shooting uh, um, immediately in its aftermath. And he still he still harboured hopes that it might be possible uh, for Sinn Féin uh, to, to, maintain, uh, to maintain its unity. I mean, what decisively changes the situation um, is when um, two 18-pounder guns are borrowed from the British Army and the Four Courts is shelled. Uh, th- that becomes sort of the, the, the decisive uh, point. Um, but Brewer is still, he's still committed to constitutional means in the aftermath of the, of the June uh, election. Uh, he was elected um, under the, the terms of the pact election uh, for Waterford East uh, East Tipperary. I think, uh, if memory serves me correctly, he came, I think, fourth uh, in the uh, in the poll, which is an indication, I suppose, again, of the public's overwhelming endorsement uh, of the treaty settlement. So, Di, why then did he take up arms and find himself in this battle for O'Connell Street? Because, as, as your book shows, he had... You know, fought very bravely during the 1916 Rising, had been wounded many times. I'm sure the last thing he wanted was to get involved in another uh, conflict and to get involved in in more fighting. Uh, Why did he make that decision? I think there was a sense with Brewer that he could not live 
uh, when his cherished ideal of an Irish Republic had effectively been disestablished uh, by the Irish public. Uh, but once once those two 18-pounder guns were borrowed, uh, that, in a sense, changed the narrative for Brewer. Uh, he interpreted that as, as sort of British interference and that former comrades had sort of gone over to the British side. And it was with great reluctance, Patrick, that he took up arms. Um, you know, he, in a really kind of tragic way, he says goodbye to his family. He does not expect uh to to survive and he sort of convinces himself in 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 conjunction with his spiritual advisor um that what he's doing is, is right and just but he he sort of believes and this is increasingly apparent from my witness accounts in the hammam hotel that his death might actually shock the public uh, and might prevent further uh deaths of, of irish men i mean he he went on record in the doll stating that um, you know, to the effect that he would be okay um, if he were killed by an English bullet or an orange bullet. But the last thing he wanted was to be killed uh, by somebody that he that he would have regarded as a comrade during the Irish Revolution. So um, it, it's really almost out of this devotion and, and dedication to a republic that he very reluctantly re-enlists in the IRA as a private uh, on the 29th of, of, of June. Gerard, there's been a huge mythology about Cahill Brewer's death and stories of him uh, going out onto the street with a, a gun in each hand and uh, firing off bullets and fighting until uh, he was uh, finally gunned down. But then there are also these counter stories, as you show in the book, that perhaps he didn't fire a shot at all and that perhaps uh, these accounts have, have, have really been just a, a mythology rather than the real story. Patrick, there are uh, differing accounts of what happened kind of at the end. But I think one of the closest uh, accounts we have to rely on is Linda Kearns, who was actually standing beside Brewer as he went out into the lane at the back of the Hammond Hotel. And um, she clearly states that he went out with a pistol in each hand and shouted no surrender. And a close-by observer who was a member of the Red Cross clearly state that a shot hit Brewer in the left thigh. He fell down, tried to rise, but was unable to uh, rise again. None of them, none of them mention that he fired any shot. And I think that goes back to Brewer's um, commitment that he would never shoot a fellow Irish man in the course of conflict and that he hoped that uh, an Irishman would not shoot him. So I think while there are different accounts, I don't think Brewer fired any shot, and it was never never his intention. Dahi, there is a very powerful after story then as well, and you and Jared deal with that so well in the book as well, talking about the legacy, the way his image and name was was used and propagandised in the years ahead, and even in terms of things being named after Cahill Brewer. And talk to us about that, and also the way his wife Kathleen, she she then succeeded him in the doll and, and, and followed in his footsteps in that way. Um, well, I suppose one of the things, Patrick, we're very keen to do uh, is to uh, focus on the role played by Brewer's wife, Kathleen. Uh, she was as ardent a Republican as he was. Um, and it's almost certain that he would he did not go to his death 
1922 without her blessing. Um, and she was very keen throughout the rest of her life uh, to preserve uh, Brewer's legacy. And by that, I mean Brewer's uh, commitment to an Irish Republic. She became uh, a Sinn Féin TD. She did not, of course, uh, take up her seat in the Thal, uh because of the abstentionist policy of that party. And she remained a TD until um, 1927. Sinn Féin didn't, for, for for financial reasons, didn't um, contest elections thereafter, and that ended her her political uh, career. She was particularly uh, interested uh, in promoting the plight of Republican prisoners. Um, and I suppose the other main focus uh, was I I ensuring uh, the well-being of her family. And on the back cover of the book, uh, we show a very poignant photograph of Kathleen at Brewer's graveside and um, five of his, his six children. Uh, the youngest child, uh, Nessa, was just three months old uh, when her father died. And I think we, we tend to forget, Patrick, that um, Brewer was very young uh, when he died. Um, he was uh, just shy of his 48th birthday. So for a relatively large family, uh, to kind of soldier on uh, without their without their father um, is an important human dimension that we wanted uh, that we wanted to uh, to discuss. If you're familiar with Burger King, Patrick on O'Connell Street, and you you may not be, um, that is where Kathleen set up a, a drapery business called Kingston's, uh, and that's that was kind of the mainstay of the family. She refused uh, to accept any financial help from uh, the Free State government. Um, she had refused uh, Free State um, personnel and ministers um, to permission to attend uh, Bruce's funeral. And she refused uh, de Valera uh, when he attempted to, I suppose, purloin uh, Brewer's legacy for Fianna Fáil's own ends in the way that uh, Cumann Gael and Fianna Gael would have done with the memory of, of Michael Collins. She refused, for example, to to lend um, uh, Brewer's death mask um, to, uh, to Fianna Fáil. Um, now, arguably, her stance, um, or I suppose that kind of purity in terms of preserving Brewer's legacy, um, arguably contributed to his neglect, I think, by by historians. You know, if there had been more, I suppose, public kind of commemoration of him, uh, then Brewer's story might have been uh, kind of better known. And you mentioned Kingston's, uh, you show in the book how it also seems to have been hugely successful and had a great slogan as well about how you could trust a product once it was at Kingston's. Uh, that's correct. It, it, uh, you know, it, it was a leading uh, sort of uh, gentleman's uh, drapery. Um, you know, and 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 was so until you know right right into the early nineteen seventies. Um, so it was quite a you know very prominently advertised in 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 the in the Dublin press and so on. And uh, Brewer's uh, son Rory, uh, who later became a, F a Fianna Fáil uh, TD and MEP, he was uh, he was he he was the managing director uh, of of Kingston's. That was his job when he uh, when he came of age. Jared, in tonight's show, we wanted to look at different aspects of the civil war, and we want to kind of explore the the complexity of it and uh, just how traumatic it was for the different people involved. And we thought that the Carl Brewer story was a very interesting way of ending the show because it is someone who opposed the treaty and was who was killed on the anti-treaty side, but yet was someone who was hoping that there wouldn't be a civil war and was very anxious not to not to see all this bloodshed. And, and so he kind of captures 
I think really the tragedy and and the sadness of that conflict. He, he does, and I think in one sense that um, Brewer was conscious of the legacy of the 1916 Rising, and particularly his close friendship with Eamon Kant. And um, I suppose when we think about many of the leaders of the 1916 Rising, they, they, they realised that it would end with, it, with, with their death. And Kant certainly uh, believed that, making his will shortly before he uh, headed off to the South Dublin Union. But in a letter wrote, almost an open letter to the Irish people uh, before his execution, uh, Kant regretted his surrender and uh, felt that the best thing to do would have been to fight to the finish. And I think that those remarks, and particularly, as I said, Brewer's friendship with Kant, made a very lasting mark on him. And I think, like the legacy of the 1916 Rising, Brewer believed that perhaps his death could bring an end to the Civil War and uh, end the brutal conflict how was he to know, really, as to how things were going to turn out? And as we know, there was to be more, many more months of fighting before that exactly. civil war did come to an end. Well, my thanks to Dahio Cron and Jared Hanley for joining me tonight to conclude tonight's show on the Irish Civil War. Their new book is called Cahill Brewer, An Indomitable Spirit, published by Four Courts Press. And Dahi, Jared, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thanks, Thank you, Patrick. Pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, Eugene Kolachev on research and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be talking about JFK's visit to Ireland and what it really signified. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night.